0: Welcome back. Two years ago, an officer at the Dixon County Sheriff's Department opened his laptop. There's no fan turning lazily in the lobby of the Dixon County Sheriff's Department. There isn't a bell that dings when you walk through the front door. From the outside, it looks more like a shopping mall than what you probably picture when I say Dixon County Sheriff's Department. The county is a pretty quiet place. It's a place with history, it's a place kind of wrapped around an interstate, it's a place with an old mill. The sheriff's department, alternatively, is tall and modern and wrapped in glass. If you look at the budget for Dixon, Tennessee, for the whole county, one thing jumps out at you. This place spends a lot on their sheriff's department, and it shows. It feels like it belongs to the future of Dixon rather than its present. But in the fall of 2014, somewhere in this building kind of plucked out of time, someone fell feel victim to a trap from the future. This tool, still in its infancy, crawling from depths of the internet, that paints a picture of where hacking is headed. Somewhere in the Dixon County Sheriff's Department, someone turned on their laptop. And on their screen, a countdown timer had begun. 72 hours marching down the moment they opened the display. A timer and a message. Your files have been encrypted. There is no way you will ever see them again without the key. If you want the key, you have to pay. This is ransomware. A malicious new breed of malware that takes your digital information hostage. The ransomware that breached Dixon County and half a dozen other police departments across the United States, it took in almost three million dollars before it was conquered by an international joint task force that dismantled it piece by piece. But with hackers creating new breeds of ransomware every day, It represents a future in which cybercrime is more like a business, and almost anyone with the right skills is an entrepreneur. Oh, and Dixon County? They paid the ransom. My name is Jordan Blumen. And I'm Scott Winder. And this is Ransomware on this episode of Hack.
1: Nothing better exemplifies the change that's happening in the cybersecurity world than ransomware. And to me, that's why I find it fascinating. You know, we've had malware for decades, but it was always nuisance malware. And it was, you know, people trying to hack in and people wanted access to things they weren't supposed to have access to. And now we do it for money. Ransomware is a commercial transaction. And we have moved from hackers in the underworld causing nuisances and looking for stuff and trying to get attain access to things that they weren't supposed to to hackers generating millions and millions of dollars.
0: I feel like, and this is probably just from the outside looking in, but I have a sense that hacking, there's always been an element of like for profit in hacking it's just been more at the upper levels of it where it feels like ransomware is the first time someone just getting into this world for the first time can do something that makes them money almost immediately
1: yeah i think that's probably because you saw hacking through the lens of pop culture and it's like i saw hacking through the lens of hackers and a lot of hackers didn't do things to generate money they didn't make money from hacking it's it, you know it wasn't something that he could easily do like you know a hacker who wanted to make money from hacking would have to use you know the tool set that is being able to hack as part of a chain that generated money you know there wasn't just some commercial thing you didn't hack a bank and just move money you know that's the kind of quintessential pop culture reference but you know that it didn't happen all the time
0: Yeah, it's almost the difference between like a long con or a con artist versus someone who's just willing to mug you in the street. Yeah. Coming from your background, how would you have made money hacking?
1: You know, I think I think it would have been part of the challenge. It would have been part of the excitement. It would have been what can I do? Okay, I have the ability to attain access to people's Communications, okay. What communications are confidential but relevant to future money? Uh, maybe it's mergers and acquisitions information from Wall Street firms. If I had access to that stuff, then I could trade the market before the news broke. You know, it's part of the clever problem solving that went into hacking. And now we just literally have people, as you said, mugging people in the streets. And that's what ransomware is. The creativity. And the cleverness of it is gone. It is just a brute force transaction.
0: And it's also about the idea of casting a really, really, really wide net and seeing who bites. I mean, that's that's fishing. It's about putting this thing out there in the world as many times as you possibly can and seeing who falls victim to it. Whereas what you're talking about is the idea of staring down a target and going after them and using all of that creativity and those skills that a hacker has to facilitate that.
1: Yeah, quality over quantity versus, you know, yeah quantity over quality if you send out a phishing scam and demand a bitcoin ransom from 70 million people and seven million people pay it hey you're a wealthy wealthy person (laughs) uh you know if i know what the interest rate decisions are going to be for the united states federal reserve hours before they become public i'm also going to be a very rich person but i didn't injure people to get it i think that's the difference Okay, so what is ransomware? Well, ransomware is, you know, literally malware that holds your computer or your information ransom. And the, the you in that is very flexible. It could be, you know, your mother, or it could be a hospital, or it could be the FBI. And pretty much all of those people have paid it at some point.
0: Right, so when you say it holds your data hostage, how does it hold data hostage? We can think of holding a person hostage in a very literal way, but how do you hold data hostage?
1: Well, the, the thing that they've discovered is they can encrypt it and generate a key to decrypt it that's unique to just your data, and then they essentially hold that decryption key hostage. So your data is still in your possession. It's just being encrypted. But if you want to unencrypt it, you need the decryption key from them. So it's using a form of key-based encryption, which we've kind of touched on in other Mm -hmm. episodes.
0: So this piece of malware infects your computer. It takes all of your data and encrypts it, and the only way that you can unencrypt it is if you pay them for that key.
1: Correct, and usually it's on some demand time, like a traditional ransom demand. You've got 96 hours to
0: produce $1,500 or else it's all gone. How do you get, without getting too specific, how do you get a piece of software like this onto a victim's computer?
1: The most interesting thing that we might be able to look at in ransomware is the uh, propagation of it. You know, how is it getting spread? And it's getting spread in all kinds of ways, from phishing scams over email to probably the most interesting cases are when people figure out ways to inject it into uh, advertising, which is called malvertising. How do you do that? I think it's ad network dependent, but some ad networks have had flash vulnerabilities or have had HTML5 vulnerabilities that will actually set off an attack vector that ends up with malware being put on your computer. So it's, yeah, it's pretty substantial.
0: I don't even. We'll have to cut this. I don't even want to go down this road, but that's <laughs> that might be the most ethical argument for ad blockers I've heard yet, is that they're unsecure platforms and people can use them to inject stuff on your computer.
1: Yeah. you could de- You could probably spend a few months researching
0: and put together a pretty strong argument for that. That's bananas. Yeah. Okay, so someone decides that they want to. They want to try and do this. They want to put ransomware in the world again. Without being too specific, where do people find these things? Like, this is not a piece of software that I can download off the app store.
1: Most of them are kind of custom written, but like a lot of the organized crime that's using it now, they might have somebody might have written it a long time ago. Like CryptoLocker is a big one. Um, there's a new one that's flying around right now. It's not new, but it's it's kind of having a resurgence right now called Locky. And yeah, these were written by people like I CryptoLockers in its I don't remember fifth sixth version maybe like it's been around for a while. Uh, so yeah, so they're generally custom written, shared amongst specific groups. So right, and if they're not custom written, yeah, so are are they copycats? So so they're clones of this original good idea, if you want to say it's a good idea, but appears to make you know, organized crime, millions and millions of dollars, so I guess it's good to some people.
0: Okay, so do you pay these people?
1: Well, I think the general consensus is yes. Like, I think the FBI pays them. I know a sheriff's department in the States paid them, which we talked about in the opening. Uh, hospitals have paid them. It's it's really do or die, so I think you have to make a personal decision of whether what they have of yours is worth what they want you to pay for it. So if it's the operating spreadsheets for your business and it would cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay to get them back, or you could just give them $1,500, I think
0: the economic utility of that statement speaks for itself. It is distinct from a a classic hostage situation in that They don't have a person that they're responsible for at the end of this. The data's on your computer, it's just encrypted. So it doesn't really matter to them one way or another whether or not you pay it. If you decide not to pay, you're just out your data and they're still out there in the world. Nothing bad has happened to them.
1: Yeah, and I think there's some organizational structure behind that too, where it's like there's call centers for a lot of the big organizations that do this. So you're completely removed. The person who is in charge of writing the code isn't probably the person who's in charge of having it deployed who isn't the person who's in charge of communicating with the hostages you know it's it's you're so far removed from it you're just a call center worker at some point and you know it's not on you you know you're not the one deciding someone's life like you would be if you were truly holding someone hostage so it's it's got levels of insanity and that are also levels of brilliance depending on what lens you're looking through
0: it's taking it's taking the skills of hacking and instead of being one phase in a long con to use that term we used earlier it's using them as a resource in starting up a business. And I feel like that's what's different about it. And at least that's what feels different about it.
1: Yeah, it's it is you know, petty level cr- crime activity for profit. It is organized crime in the
0: 21st century. I think it's worth asking you're not willing to pay is there anything you can do to get this information back, or is it just lost to the world?
1: Depends. So some of them aren't using strong enough encryption that people can actually reverse engineer the encryption. So some of them, and I don't know the exact ones or I would use them by name, but but some of these different uh, ransomware versions, if you have some of your original files and can feed in the encrypted version and the exact same version as an original, so maybe from an email or from a backup, it can actually figure out the decryption key, and then you can decrypt your stuff. But most of the modern versions, no. It's a heavy encryption, and it's gone.
0: I think it's tough, because in that moment, I would be so angry, and I would be so upset, even if it is just X amount of dollars for my data back. I'm so angry with these people, I don't want to give them money.
1: Yeah, but... They get you in the hook because they target specific file types, notably images, spreadsheets, Word documents. So imagine if you, you know, were writing a book, keeping photo diaries of all your family, you know, and as all photos have pretty much gone digital at this point, all of your memories. You know, what are these things worth to you? Are they backed up to the cloud? Better question, was your cloud hit with ransomware? Because that's another major
0: problem. What exactly happens when your backup gets infected?
1: Yeah, so think about something like Google Drive or um, Apple iCloud Drive, Dropbox. These are services that keep files local on your computer, but then they replicate and sync to to essentially a, a virtual hard drive in the sky. So if your files become encrypted on the local version and they sync to the virtual hard drive in the sky assuming there isn't version control all of the files in the in the cloud are now the encrypted versions not the original versions so you know a lot of these little services like Dropbox have the ability to kind of look through some versions hopefully but for major corporations this becomes a huge issue because you get something called hot site backups so like a lot of big companies will have their entire technical infrastructure replicated at a separate server farm so if something happens you know the infrastructure immediately swaps over so imagine your building with your server farm burns down it's kind of okay because the server farm exists in another place and the data is kept in sync in real time which is why it's called a hot site it's not a cold site where they have to show up and turn the servers on and rebuild the data it's live so major, major companies will have this. But the issue is, is that if one site gets hit with a ransomware, it'll real-time sync to the hot site swap. So it's, it's, you know, you're getting this, like, enterprise-level headache. You've spent millions of dollars to have this second, you know, technological infrastructure set up for you. But it can be ruined in a heartbeat.
0: At that point, you're just paying someone to back up a virus that has compromised your system.
1: Right. Well, if you think about it, something like a fire, like a traditional hazard, you know, a building burns down and it's a huge incident, but can be less destructive to a company than ransomware can be. So that's when the ransoms start to get out of control. If they get into an infrastructure and encrypt an entire enterprise, databases, accounting software, Every operational document, versions, logos, you name it. Imagine it all gone. Everything in public drives. And that U-drive that you have at work, everything is gone.
0: These people that are sending this software out, they send it out en masse. They try and get as many people infected as they can. Do they know when they've gotten that massive corporation whose information is worth millions versus your aunt with a couple of photos that's only willing to pay maybe a hundred couple, a couple hundred bucks for it?
1: Yeah. I think the there I I don't know the ins and outs of the technology enough to know exactly how it does, but I assume it's based on volume, because the first thing it does, like if if it hits your work computer, the first thing it does is it looks not only at what's on your computer, but what's on the network that it can reach. So it starts to spread through the network. So imagine in a big company where you've got thousands of computers, maybe accessible over the network or sharing files back and forth, and they're literally just sharing the ransomware of, you know, back and forth.
0: Okay, so how do you defend against this either as an individual or as an organization that has this massive network of com- connected computers?
1: It's tough. The, the way, like, there's no... Man, I don't even know what to say to that. There's no level of organization that's really figured out how to avoid it. Like, it hits everybody. I know one of the things that's becoming more common is like a sandboxing system so that the second you download any file or any file downloads on your computer, it kind of lives inside of a little small uh, virtual machine on your computer so that you kind of get to run it in there and s- ensure that it's, it works. So it won't have access to the, any files, any other files on the hard drive. It won't have access to the network. It won't have any access to that stuff until it's been proven clean at which at that point it can come out but you know those are expensive enterprise level systems i'm sure there are other things that i'm not super familiar with them if anybody knows any feel free to tweet them at us
0: and what about for an individual
1: be smart same old same old comes down to being smart but then again to go back to propagation i can't remember exactly who it was but i think it was an ftp client for osx somebody had hacked their server so that if you downloaded the installer over the course of like one week inside of that installer it also installed ransomware like it's you know as the more walls you put up the more clever people become and it seems people keep becoming more and more clever so I don't know if the best way to protecting is it is just to it's to just keep your wits about you when you're doing stuff.
0: Which is kind of the exact opposite way of people of how people actually interact with computers now. We're becoming way more trusting even as things get theoretically a lot more dangerous.
1: I think that's the, I think that's the game now. The more trusting that the end user becomes, the more field they've created for the hackers to play.
0: So last episode we mentioned having some potentially... What's well, a good way to get into this?
1: Last episode, we mentioned uh, some of the delays and some other things that were going on that we were trying to get going to kind of allow us to do more of this.
0: And we were very, very, very hush-hush about it, but um, the press release has kind of gone out, so it seems like we can probably talk about it.
1: Yeah. So uh, we... Why don't you just
0: read the read the press release? Sure.
1: Let's just read the press release. Network Media Group Incorporated is pleased to announce it has acquired the exclusive right to adapt the iTunes podcast, Hacked, as a television series. Created by tech entrepreneurs and storytellers, Scott Francis Winder and
0: Jordan Blumen,
1: the Hacked podcast explores the curious, enlightening, and occasionally criminal underbelly of the internet. With the podcast currently attracting tens of thousands of followers for each new installment, Network, and the hacked creators will expand the scope and scale of the storytelling to bring its legions of podcast followers, that's you guys, an even bigger payoff with a deeper dive into the myriad of mysteries and other compelling stories lurking in the online world.
0: We're the worst. We just read our entire press release. That is not the entire press release. No, that's the first paragraph.
1: But anyway, so we might make a TV show.
0: That's what we're working on. It doesn't mean that we're going to get to make it, but it means that some very, very nice people want to try and make it. So hopefully that was worth the, the big old delay uh, between the last batch of episodes.
1: We're super ecstatic about it, truthfully. Uh, Jordan and I would love to make
0: a TV show, and this seems like a great TV show to make. But in the meantime, we're going to keep trying to make podcast episodes.
1: Yeah, and if you happen to be a person that works at a major television network that wants to buy a TV show, then you should buy ours. <laughs>
0: Um, And on that note, my name is Jordan Blumen. And I'm Scott Winder. Thanks for listening to this episode of Hacked.